Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Police misconduct and police accountability is the topic of this edition of Radio Curious. Our guest is Dr. Joseph Marshall, a member of the San Francisco Police Commission, where he is leading the commission's effort to reform policies and procedures for the San Francisco Police Department. In addition, Dr. Marshall is the executive director of Alive and Free, a nonprofit organization that teaches inner city youth violence protection tools and offers higher education scholarships. Dr. Marshall is the host of Street Soldiers Radio, broadcast live on air and online from 8 to 10 p.m. on KMEL-FM 106.1 from San Francisco, California. I spoke with Dr. Marshall on August 15, 2016 from his office in San Francisco and began our conversation when I asked him about Black Lives Matter. Just from what I've read, what I've seen, not doing a thorough investigation, but uh, what I've gathered, Black Lives Matter is primarily focused on doing something about uh, police accountability and reform. Uh, I do know it was after the uh, Trayvon Martin incident, in, uh, or shooting, actually, uh, in, in Florida that... Um, I believe is is when the hashtag Black Lives Matter uh, came about, and uh, since then they have, you know, folks who are part of the movement uh, have made it a primary focus of their efforts to do something about uh, police accountability and reform. Um, it's also probably for many people, you know, a slogan. Uh, so I think. You know, there are two aspects of it in, in, in people's lives, but primarily it, it's my understanding is that it deals with police accountability and reform. You talk about the movement. Uh, how would you describe that group? Well, you know, I, I got a question actually when this, a couple of years ago I was at a forum uh, and folks asked me, was it a movement or a moment? And at that point, I said, it's too soon to tell. And But I have my own definition of a movement. Uh, and in my framework, as uh, movements go, is uh, probably the best one for me is the civil rights movement. And I said then, and I probably still hold it as now as my definition of a movement, is uh, you know something that's sustained, something that has goals and objectives, uh, and benchmarks along along the way, and uh, you know tries to move on those goals and objectives, and 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 look at the benchmarks to see if it isn't attaining those things. Um, from that standpoint, probably by my definition of a movement, uh, I don't know if it's that. Uh, I know it's an effort, but I don't know for me if it fits. You know my definition. Uh, of a movement, although probably a lot of folks feel that it does, but just 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 for me and 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 what I've seen as a as something 
that has been a very successful movement now with the Civil Rights Movement. So let's bring this into your position as being a member of the San Francisco Police Commission. What is the other, what is the makeup of the other members of the police commission? So let's see, the two African Americans, um, two Latinos, one Asian, and two Caucasians. Um, and, uh, one of the African Americans is a gay male. Um, so it's, 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 it's San Francisco. <laughs> It's, it's, it reflects the diversity uh, in, in the city of San Francisco. What kind of incidents do the police commission review? What, what's the scope of, of your authority? Well, we're an oversight body, a civilian oversight body of policies, procedures, um, all of that. Uh, it has a lot of uh, uh, wide-ranging authority. Uh, with the department, especially when it comes to policy and procedures, uh, you know, we, we set all the, 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 the general orders. Um, I think what makes us more unique than any civilian oversight body in the country, and uh, there's not many civilian oversight bodies, uh, but and ours is particularly unique because we also do discipline. Our police chief cannot Fire. He can only suspend up to ten days. So, in terms of whether a police officer, you know, can remain on the force, ends up being under the purview of the police commission. So uh, that's probably our biggest duty, so to speak, is uh, you know, is, is, is this disciplinary action with regard to officers. In terms of accountability and reform, and accountability and reform, sure. Uh, and we had a serious incident. Uh, we had our own uh, Michael Brown incident, or you know, pick any of the cities. It was it was pretty bad. I remember. I remember when I saw it. I said, uh, if what I saw was in policy, so we have set about to change our policies so that uh, something like that can't happen again. There's been a very sustained effort by the police commission. What happened? Well, there was a young man. His name was Mario Woods. He uh, had a a knife. Now, the background is that he uh, had stabbed someone uh, previously. He, the, the the officers got a call about it. They went out to the the Bayview area of the city, which is the black community, and they encountered him on the street. Uh, they asked him to drop the knife. He did not drop the knife. They hit him with beanbags, and they don't have tasers in the city. So they, they hit him with beanbag rounds. He still did not drop the knife. An officer then went to 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 cut off, cut him off as he walked down the street. The officer then said that he, under fear for his life, uh, as, as, as the young man, Mario, continued to walk, uh, he then fired and shot him, and then... I believe it was five of the officers opened fire, and uh, I think there were in the end there were 21 rounds that were fired into this young man. And the policy that you're challenging, would you describe that? Well, to the naked eye, or the, to, to the common sense eye, the first thing is that uh, uh, is that it, you know he had a knife. He was not a threat at that point uh, to the officers. They, they could have done something else other than to, to use firearms with him. Uh, 
he wasn't he wasn't moving toward the officers. Uh, he wasn't charging them. He just continued to walk. Um, he was also under duress. I think even the officers felt that it came out that he was uh, under duress, maybe some sort of mental you know mental condition. And that also bothered people that, you know, maybe they should have gotten some crisis intervention help for him. And then probably the biggest thing was the fact that, uh, you know, so many bullets were fired into him. And um, it was caught on videotape by, uh, by, uh, by Sanders. And quite frankly, to a lot of folks, it looked like, you know, a firing squad on execution. Um and it raised a lot of questions. It caused a lot of consternation in the community. There were protests and just about everything. It wasn't a lot of rioting or, or looting, but uh, you know the demands for for accountability and, and the, you know the firing of the chief and the firing of the mayor and folks came to the police commission and it, it was pretty, pretty it, was, it was pretty tense. Uh, there was a hunger strike that followed. Um, and I, again, my thing as a commissioner is it, it, this may have been in policy, but I felt there was a different way that we could have handled things. Um, and so we set about to, to make changes so that something like that, uh, would be handled differently. Have those changes been made yet? It, uh, it took a while, but we have a new use of force policy in place. Very new, very different. We looked at all of President Obama's uh, recommendations for 21st century policing. We looked at all the best practices. Uh, we made, uh, when I say we, I mean commissioners and the, uh, the department made trips literally outside the country to look at how they handle things in, in other parts of the world. But uh, it all talks about the value of life um, and primarily talks about de-escalation and minimal use of force and creating time and distance. That is the thrust that that we want uh, our officers to use when it comes to these incidents. There are some figures around uh, if you can wait five or seven minutes um, and just wait things out, the, the chance of use of force goes down exponentially, particularly when it comes to... Uh, People who are danger only to themselves use the use of lethal force is prohibited under our new uh, under our new general orders. And when it comes to using edge weapons, something other than a gun, then there's a host of procedures you have to follow, beginning with backing off, backing off, backing off, waiting, do not move forward, do not move in. Um, the last thing you want to, that, that our officers are, 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 are allowed to use is, is, is lethal force. Uh, it definitely talks about bringing in crisis intervention people, but mostly it's about minimal force, creating time and distance, and, 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 and waiting the thing out. Well, much like, much like one that you've seen in hostage negotiation procedures. Dr. Joe Marshall, I want to ask you about the reaction of the police officers on the streets to this policy. But first, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Dr. Joseph Marshall from his office in San Francisco, California. He's the executive director of Alive and Free, and the focus is primarily black youth 
teenagers, alive as in not dead and free as in out of jail. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Doc, what is the reaction of the police officers in San Francisco to this new policy? First of all, let me say policing is affected by everything that goes on in the United States. So a lot has happened since we started this, and it's been exacerbated probably the feelings of officers by the shootings in uh, 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 Dallas and uh, I believe it was, I can't remember, in Baton Rouge where snipers had taken down innocent police officers. So uh, any feelings, you can just ramp up their feelings based on, you know, the, uh, the shootings of those innocent officers. As you can imagine, Change is very different. We're trying to sort of turn the Titanic here. We want to change the department from sort of a warrior mentality to a guardian mentality. Uh, and it's been, it's very different from the way they have policed in the past. Uh, that being said, uh, they have agreed to 80% of this use of force policy. And I'm talking about the police union. Um, it was, we built a real consensus here before actually taking it to them, although they were part of the consensus. So we went out and we talked to community members. We got all the stakeholders. We got young people involved. Uh, we took the use of force policies out to the community, had them talk about what they'd like to see. We gathered all that information, turned that into a base to give to, you know, the ACLU and all the, all the other, uh, the, the, the Office of Citizen Complaints, all the interested stakeholders in the city. Uh, we got, uh, you know, recommendations from the Department of Justice and the, uh, the COPS office, collaborative, uh, I can never say that, that acronym correct, uh, and put all that together in a, in, uh, uh, a new use of force policy that we then sent to the union for a meet and confer. And, uh, they ended up agreeing there's still a few things that have to be ironed out, four or five things. So, But as far as 80% of the policy, they have already agreed to it. And while the meeting, while the meeting confer is going on, the last 20% of the policy, the 80% is now being used in the department. To the extent that we have had four situations that have, have ended up being resolved very, very differently than they might have had in the past, under this whole new thrust of policing. Yet in uh, this year, 2016, uh, I've read articles about racist slurs uh, and derogatory statements uh, that have been lifted from texts and emails between San Francisco police officers. Yes. How do you deal with those in this, uh, in this topic? Well, since I do the discipline piece <laughs> also, uh, just about all of those officers have either resigned, uh, before they could come to the commission. I've actually, since then, have gone into the police, uh, academy and actually done a, uh, a training piece on what they call offensive language. And mind you, all these texts were not uh, on department-issued phones or department-issued uh, computers, this was on their off-duty. Uh, this is on their private cell phones. So, um, you know, what it basically said to the public is they may act one way on on duty, but if they feel this way about, uh, you know, homophobic and racist text messages about the public, 
the community in which they serve, it is definitely going to color and spill over to their policing. So um, yeah, I went into the academy and talked about that, and, and I call it not so much offensive language. I actually call it destructive language. So that's pretty much a zero tolerance for that here. Um, uh, and hopefully you won't see that kind of thing again. So the spillover and the zero tolerance for it is a disciplinary consequence. But what about the understanding that we're all people? It doesn't really matter the color of our skin. Well, part of uh, part of our reform, and I call it reform, uh, or changing the culture of policing here in the city, which we hope will end up being a model for the rest of the United States, is, uh, you know, in, in, implicit bias. Bias training, implicit bias training, um, and we're we're going we're undergoing a complete makeover here, <laughs> and this takes a while because changing the culture of something is a tough thing to do, but you got to be dedicated to it. So we're doing a complete makeover here. So what you're referring to is bias, and um, they're being retrained, and the new people are being trained uh, about the biases they bring to the workplace. And let me just say, as a chief has bought in 100%, which is, I think, a reason that we have had so far these situations not become something that you read about, which you might have done in, in the past. So um, he's an interim chief right now. The other, uh, the chief, previous chief was uh, asked to resign by the mayor. Um, and as we look for a new chief, uh, and, the, and it does not to say that this interim chief might not become that, but we're looking for somebody to continue this path of reform. Well, Dr. Joe Marshall, let's uh, go back a little bit in our conversation uh, and talk about Black Lives Matter as a movement compared to the civil rights movement of 50 years ago. Sure. What are the similarities and differences as you see them? You know, I, 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 the, the first similarity is, is, and that's to be obvious one, that they are both were upset about, about conditions that existed at the time. Uh, I mean, the civil rights movement was upset, about, upset specifically uh, a number of things, but uh, about, you know, uh, segregated conditions in the South, uh, about laws that were on the books that had to be removed, about, uh, you know, discrimination, racism, and, and set about to do something about that. Black Lives Matter, and there are probably, I'm not saying there are other issues. It's not the sole issue, but probably the most public one is they want to do something about, uh, you know, police misconduct and do something about police accountability and reform. Differences that I see, uh, the civil rights movement was extremely strategic, had goals and objectives and benchmarks, um, had a, a, a very tightly woven strategy, uh, reassessed that strategy, um, and, and, and followed it through to completion. Uh, in other words, they wanted to do something about changing, um, you know, about desegregating the buses in, in Alabama. And so they decided to have this, you know, Birmingham bus boycott. And, uh, you know, the outcome would be that the uh, buses would be desegregated. Uh, uh, they specifically wanted laws to change. And all their strategies and uh, tactics were tied to, you know, an outcome. Uh, and it was very sustained and it was nonviolent. It was nonviolent. It may have been nonviolent resistance, passive resistance, and people reacted to them. But, uh, 
And so that's why I think it was so successful because it was very focused. Uh, it was it was long term. What I'm doing here with the with with the with police accountability requires sustained heavy lifting uh, and the change of policies and procedures to make those things happen. I don't know than what I've seen uh, with the the quote Black Lives Matter movement that that is part of their agenda. Uh, I often and my question would be is well you know. That's what you want to have happen, right? You want, I mean, if you want departments to be different, there's a huge process in making that happen. And I'm not sure that from what I've seen, and I can say this personally because as I'm going through this changing this department, uh, I haven't had any contact with anybody that represents Black Lives Matter at all. And I know they're around, they're here, I've heard them, I've heard them come in and, you know, demonstrate and shout and so on and so forth. But they have, they, they've never come up to me and said, this is what we like to see. Uh, I haven't seen any of that grassroots hard work that needs to be done to turn, to change the very thing that they're, that they are upset about. Well, Dr. Joe Marshall, let's talk about the change that you've observed, uh, that you've felt, uh, since you organized the Black Student Union at your school when you were 19. Oof. That's a long time ago. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I when I read the autobiography of Malcolm X at the age of 19, I knew I wanted to be a community person. And, uh, you know, my first way of doing that was to uh, just change what I could in my school. And then, you know, then became and, and, and was successful at that. But I always had things I wanted to achieve. I wanted, you know, more black faculty. I wanted to, I wanted uh, ethnic black studies courses at the school. I was always a very practical person when it came to community. I wanted to tutor kids. I wanted to do food drives. I wanted to do something that I could see an end result. I just I even wanted food in the cafeteria. I want everything to change. Um, and we did that. We did that. And the tough thing about when you're in a school like that is you graduate and you move on. And then I moved on into uh, becoming a teacher and, 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 and you know, being a school administrator for years and then working with young people in my own organization and Helping them to become change agents, uh, but I'm a very I'm a student of history. Uh, obviously, reading the book. I mean, when I say reading Malcolm X, I, I saw the panorama of, uh, of of being black in America and the uh, the uphill climb and uh, the very and, and the focused nature of it by a lot of folks in the past. I, I also knew that it was a you know a continuing struggle. It's like a marathon relay race. That's the phrase I use. And I knew that uh, there was always going to be something needed to be worked on. When crack cocaine hit the black community, it had a huge setback in regards to, uh, you know, conditions in the community. There are always going to be issues to be worked on. And, uh, you know, I'm glad this, this, this police thing has come up because it's something that has to be worked on. The future that you see, can you describe that? Um, there's always going to be. I mean, it's, it, to me, it's like your personal life going to be a struggle at eight it's going to be a struggle at 18 a struggle at 28 38 you know uh you know at my age at my father's age it's going to be a struggle um and issues are always going to come up and you got to be ready for the struggle uh it, it, it's funny i don't have a problem taking on this 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 issue of police accountability because i've just been in the struggle it doesn't bother me i'm prepared for it um it's part of my legacy, you know, as a black man in this 
in this country, literally in this world, uh, and I'm just ready for that. I was trained for that. Um, I, 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 I hope young people are prepared for the struggle. I, when I see a lot of them, they're like surprised. Um, and maybe it's because they haven't studied history or aren't grounded. I don't know. Um, but I do know that if they want to make change, they, they better dig in and make it because, you know, uh, and being upset about it is one thing. Um, the abolitionists were upset about, you know, the fact that slavery existed. Uh, obviously the civil rights people were upset about the conditions there. Uh, you're upset about something, you got to dig in and, 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 and focus and make changes. Um, and in my own little corner of the world, with the San Francisco Police Department, I'm showing how that can happen when it comes to policing. And, uh, you know, it's going to take a heavy lift, but I'm, I'm pretty much dedicated to it. Well, Dr. Joseph Marshall, uh, Executive Director of Alive and Free and a member of the San Francisco Police Commission, um, before we close, I'd like to ask about a eureka or an aha moment that changed your life. Uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X, uh, certainly certainly was the aha moment for me, you know, not knowing anything about history and culture. I knew there were conditions around me um, that didn't make much sense. I just didn't know how those things were created and how purposeful they were, uh, you know. Uh, but he certainly put things in perspective and allowed me to see uh, how a lot of things that were created for me as a young person growing up black in America were not only, um, were not accidental. Everything from the, uh, you know, the, the three-fifths compromise and the, uh, the Constitution to Plessy versus Ferguson and separate but equal in 1896, you know, to Jim Crow, to the Black Codes, to, uh, you know, the, uh, the war on drugs, uh, the new Jim Crow. Uh, I've seen things that I know. Um, so my job is to keep young people from falling into the traps uh, and uh, then to help remove those traps. I got, and, and to remove those traps is... Pretty straightforward, pretty easy. I enjoy doing it, um, helping young people, uh, you know, become part of the solution, not part of the problem. is a big thing when I do just celebrated my 216th college graduate that, you know, I've been able to raise money and pay for through my organization and uh, to see those folks become leaders in their own community and then, uh, you know, continue the marathon relay race to freedom. That's probably the biggest satisfaction that I've had in my life, other than my kids, <laughs> my own kids. I would say, uh, Doc, that uh, you've answered the next question, which is, what would you like to do with the rest of your One Precious Life? Is that a fair assumption? Keep on doing what I'm doing. <laughs> my grandmother told me, the more you know, the more you owe. As you go in progress in life, you must help others to do likewise. And, you know, I got this calling, and I'm just heeding my calling, living out my purpose. And the book that you recommend uh, would be what you've said, The Autobiography of Malcolm X. Great book. Well, Dr. Joseph Marshall, thank you so much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you for having me. Dr. Joseph Marshall is a member of the San Francisco Police Commission and is leading the commission's efforts to reform police policy in San Francisco, California. He's the executive director of Alive and Free, a nonprofit organization for inner city youth that teaches violence protection tools and offers higher education scholarships to inner city youth, and the host of Street Soldiers Radio, 
broadcast live online every Sunday evening from 8 to 10 p.m. The book Dr. Joseph Marshall recommends is The Autobiography of Malcolm X. This program was recorded on August 15, 2016. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.